0: Podcast episode 28. Glad you could join us. In this episode, the team is joined by Dr. Anthony Esselin. Dr. Esselin is a man who needs very little introduction since he is well known for his important publications and keynote speeches. He is also a celebrated teacher and writer in residence at Magdalen College in New Hampshire, where he continues to inspire his students and colleagues while churning out book after book, article after article, A spirited proponent of home education, we are very proud to have Dr. Esselin on our show. Enjoy.
1: Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom, liturgical musician, podcast fanatic, heavy library user, and Colby parent ambassador. I have two lads and two lasses. The youngest is in fifth grade, the eldest is in tenth, and this is our fourth year homeschooling with Colby.
2: And I'm Hope. Bonnie's younger sister and a Colby alumna in a phase of life after being a student, but before becoming a parent. I studied communication theory and philosophy in college, then I went to law school. Now I'm an attorney, an avid home cook, and the fun aunt, Bonnie's kids.
0: And I'm Jordan. After slipping through a thousand cracks, I completed a PhD in History and Literature of Ancient Christianity at Göttingen University in Germany. Now I teach Greek and Latin at Colby, and serve as the Director of Public and Alumni Relations. Here you are talking with us, so thank you. So I know I quite a bit about your scholarly endeavors and then just, uh, you know, things that, that that we've talked about, what you're doing here at Magdalene. I'd like to hear some about that. But I guess to start with, can you tell us a bit about your experience with Homeschooling or homeschoolers, or your opinion of homeschooling in general, just uh,
3: kind of discuss that a little bit. Sure. Um, I think that uh, uh, parents right now who are sending their children to public schools or even to most private schools, uh, and that'll include plenty of Catholic schools or nominally Catholic schools, are, are derelict in their duty. Um, I try to warn parents all the time to say, listen, uh, don't think that um, a good homily on Sunday and uh, good uh, catechesis from your CCD classes, um, don't think that that can be a good counterweight against the immense uh, uh, weight of um, the teaching that we get in the schools that are basically forming the imaginations It's The imagination is the driver of the person. And uh, if that imagination is being formed by what is read in school or what is seen in school um, and then confirmed by what they're watching on the television or what they're looking at on the computer screen, then I think Satan was—it would be content with that. He says, well, you can have the rest. Just give me the imagination and I'll be fine. Um, I think that at all costs, we have to uh, form the imaginations of our children by either teaching them at home or finding the rather rare uh, Catholic or or other Christian school that is that that has this in mind that that understand that where they understand okay um, that you've got to use the uh, Christian West's heritage two thousand years of art and music and literature um, to form that kid's imagination or that kid is going to be uh, in. Deep danger. As soon as he goes to a college or as soon as he uh, starts to go out into the world. So yeah. it's absolutely necessary.
0: Why Why do you think that is that uh, we're so, I guess, eager, I mean, in our society to waste our heritage? Is it a problem of not knowing our history, not knowing what we have? Or is there something more sinister at
3: work, uh, even in uh, at the individual level? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that uh, I would answer two ways right away, okay? First of all is that um, our schools have been so poor for so long, and that includes plenty of Catholic schools that use the same textbooks that the public schools use, and they pick their teachers from the same pool of candidates, right? But things have been so bad for so long that that most people really don't know uh, how much they've been deprived of. Uh, And then... um, there's our consistent undervaluing. I don't know why this is, perhaps it has something to do with the uh, American character, but I don't think so, because I don't think it used to be this way a hundred years ago in the United States, not from my reading of popular magazines and popular literature in the 1880s and 1890s, but we consistently undervalue the imagination. We we demote it, right? Even uh, otherwise sensible people will talk as if the only important thing that you might learn in school would be mathematics and applied science and and so the realm of the imagination goes by the boards and this is especially true of the universal human art poetry um where you can find which you can find among all human cultures regardless of their material conditions and regardless of whether they even have writing okay you find this art everywhere except for among us it's 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 a part of our general Uh, lackadaisical utilitarianism. But in the meantime, the imagination, that's not going to just stay idle. If good and great things are not occupying it, then what is banal or wicked or perverted, uh, that, that will occupy them. And we've surrendered. We've surrendered without a fight. Um, well, it's time to fight. So what would be some practical
0: advice you'd give to young parents that, because what we experienced during the the, the spring because of uh, COVID was a huge upsurge in people looking for alternative ways of educating. And um, what, what advice might you give somebody who has no idea what classical education is, they have no idea what any of this is, and they just want to get started, and they want to get started immediately,
3: what kind of advice would you give them? Uh, that's a good question. The, uh, what we now call classical education would have simply been called in, let's say 1920, education, right? Um, and if you would ask somebody in 1920, what is classical education? They'd have thought you want to instruct very young people in the classical languages in Latin and Greek, okay? What we now call classical education, they would have just considered to be um, a standard education in arts and letters fit for everybody okay now where do you begin with such a thing well i tell people that there's a great resource can be found easily online john senior's list which is categorized into different types uh but the his list of the thousand good books okay they're categorized for age uh genre of books you know some some are poetry some are fiction some are uh, books of essays for older people, for older uh, children, right? There's a place to start. I can hardly improve upon what uh, uh, Professor Senior did. The funny thing about it is that we're in such a state right now, you almost can't go wrong. You start anywhere, okay? Um, nobody reads good books anymore. Well, just begin reading them. Um, what is stopping us from from reading the books that used to be devoured by young people? I'm talking about 10-year-old kids, 11-year-old kids. Um, What's stopping us from reading the books of Charles Dickens? He's one of the great literary geniuses of all time. Dostoevsky and Tolstoy both believe that he was the greatest novelist of the 19th century. They couldn't stand each other, but they both thought that Charles Dickens was the greatest in that century, which is known for its novels. Um, What stops us from reading Charles Dickens? And then what stops from uh, reading the uh, American Adventure novels of James Fenimore Cooper or Mark Twain? Um, Almost anywhere, okay. And not to be afraid either, not to be afraid of it, because don't overestimate the education that teachers have got who teach in our schools now. They typically do not come from the, uh, the highest ranks of any graduating class. And your English teachers are not likely to know a great deal about English literature they're not even likely to know English grammar. That's a fact. I know that for a fact because I've been teaching undergraduates since 1985. I know what kinds of undergraduates go into the teaching profession. I know how little grammar uh, freshmen in college come with, right? I mean, this has been a long time. This problem's going back a long time. So don't be Buffalo, okay? Um, you're, you're every bit as qualified to teach your child as that teacher in your public school is, and in most other schools too. Don't be afraid, okay? Um, get out the good books and start to read. Almost start anywhere. Then when it comes to poetry, there you do have to know something. And unfortunately, nobody knows anything about poetry anymore. But I, I can recommend a pretty, good, uh, a pretty good introduction to poetry. Look up the old poet and raconteur, Louis Untermyer, Untermeyer. U-N-T-E-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R. Um, he wrote a couple of textbooks aimed at, at at young people to get them excited about poetry. And he's a very uh, easy fellow to read. He's, he, you know, you don't, you don't have to be worried, oh, this will all be over my head. No, he, he writes for ordinary people and he writes forthrightly and clearly. Um, his books were published in the 50s and the 60s. So, you know, if, it, it, and we ought to use poetry, which is dynamite. If you're nervous, you don't know anything about poetry, these books can be found on eBay, uh, used books on eBay, uh, by Untermeyer for a couple of dollars. So we're not talking about a huge expense here. But that's how I would start. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And
0: in that, because I think a lot of times people, um, they think that um, all reading is equal, but um there is you you mentioned several times the good books and then the, then resources to go back to these good books is do you think the the sort of battle for education then is more of a, a recovery mission um for the past i mean is is that what we should do is look to the the lights of the past so to speak and imitate there or what what
3: would be the direction going forward Oh, absolutely. Uh, go back to the lights of the past. You know, C.S. Lewis said that, and, and he said this 70 years ago, 80 years ago, you should read two or three old books for every uh, for every new book or every modern book that you read. And for him, modern meant, you know, 20th century. I, I sort of agree with that, right? It's It'll take a long time for us to decide to get through all the sludge that's written now. And maybe a hundred years from now, we'll have a fair idea of what was written in the 1980s and 1990s as worth remembering. We don't have any idea of that now. All right, and, what's, and why bother with it? What's, what's the point? I like to use the analogy of um, uh, classical music, right? Um, can you go wrong if you, if you want to introduce yourself to classical music? Can you go wrong by listening to Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart? You can, can't go wrong there. Do um, you need then to bother yourself over contemporary composers whose name nobody has yet really known? Uh, uh, not really. Um, you go to the masters, right? Nothing wrong with that. It's what the it's what the real composers right now, if they were serious, they tell you to do the same. They'd say, don't you know you don't have to listen to me. Uh, how, you're, you're listening to me, well you haven't listened to Mozart. Go listen to Mozart, right? You know, no, absolutely. It's it's uh, it's a mission of recovery in in these matters, and I think in most of the other arts, too.
2: This sounds like an idea that we've discussed in a few episodes, but I'm sure, Dr. Ace, that you could speak in more detail with it about the idea of mediation, and that when uh, you read primary sources, there's not a, a mediating voice in the middle of it, whereas each time you have an additional, you know, you have a composer who's listened to Mozart, and then he writes something, and then his student listens to that, and she writes something else, and then You listen to the thing that's third down the chain well it makes sense to go straight back to mozart but so i'll
3: take i'll take for example our our students at Magdalen college right um they're encountering these uh wonderful works of human thought and art and and uh culture in the broadest sense and they're encountering them um in part At first hand, because they're reading things in the quiet of their own rooms, they they may be talking about them with each other, but uh, that's happening. And then they come to class and we talk about things together. And so you might say that that's at second hand, not exactly, because we're talking about we will be talking about what they themselves experienced, for instance, as they read this work for the first time. Uh, I was doing that all over the place yesterday when I'm talking to my students about The Winter's Tale, the Shakespeare play that almost none of them have ever read. And so I was counting on the fact that they were encountering it for the first and asking them, uh, you know, what did you expect would happen during the course of this play? Knowing what you know about other uh, pieces of literature that resemble it, what did you expect? But what happened instead of what you expected? Uh, or, what did you think when you came upon that amazing final scene? What did it do to you? What did it do for you? Um, that That's, uh, I think, all, all in the realm of uh, primary encounter. And then, uh, and of course, the teacher who is talking to them um, can say things like, I remember when I read this sort first of time. Or, I remember when I had a friend of mine read this for the first time because we were teaching it together in a class. And this is what the friend said. Okay. Um, that's, that's just kind of primary. And then, well, second, there would be, okay, I want you to go and find this book over there and read what so-and-so has to say about the winner's tale. And, uh, I, I am, I have always throughout my career been a little bit leery of that. Um, because I worry that my students will, um, my students will be so, uh, how to put it, bulldozered, uh, so sw- swept off their feet or just intimidated um, by the scholarship of the secondary source, that they'll be incapable of, you know, the secondary source will persuade them, because they they don't know better, and I can't have them read 10 secondary sources enough time, um, so they'll have their minds invaded by that, uh, and um, i I. I don't think they're yet at the point where they can sift through um, what's good and what's bad what's right on target and what's mistaken about what somebody else says about the work you just read um unless the scholarship in question has itself become a classic um so maybe maybe it might be interesting for some of them to read what Doctor Johnson had to say about Shakespeare, but that's that's kind of a little bit of a different thing because he himself is uh, an, an author to study in his own right. You know? um, does that help a, a little bit there? I I don't want yes. I don't generally like putting roadblocks in front of my students. Secondary sources can be a
2: roadblock. Yes, that makes a lot of sense.
1: There's a little bit of a parallel in talking about. Secondary sources with the idea of classical music, as you brought up, with the Urtext editions of the scores of music, their um, reproductions as close as possible to what the composer wrote rather than heavy editing to add in, you know, dynamics or other markings that some editor later thought would be a good idea. They're, um, yeah. Going through, there's the, a preference for the Urtext editions whenever possible. Yeah. The thing
3: about these, uh, about instruction when it comes to this stuff is that. Um, What I consider my job doing is uh, showing my students the kinds of things that these artists did, right? Um, So I'll show them uh, places in Shakespeare where you've got some dramatic moment and try to make them imagine what this is like on stage and suggest to them that this is a common thing that Shakespeare did. Why would he do this, right? and uh, see, that that kind of thing is um, that's what a teacher should be all about. Right. Uh, but it requires in the teacher requires a decent amount of experience. I mean, otherwise it's uh, you encounter that, that thing firsthand um, with classical music. We're so classical music has so much faded from uh, most people's common uh, common experiences that you almost have to begin by. Telling uh, by showing people, gee, what the heck is even going on musically in here? You know, before they are even interpreting what they're hearing, they, they need to be made aware of what it is at all. Okay, uh, let alone what to think about it. But what it even is? What's going on here? Some of that, I, I think, I have to do when when I'm teaching uh, very old literature. But none of that that should should make us afraid. Of taking these things up, and certainly they're not taken up in our schools.
2: This idea that classical music or primary sources are unapproachable—I—I have a theory that secondary sources can kind of reinforce an inferiority complex. We're like, oh, I'm not smart enough to read the original source. I need somebody to explain it to me. But then there's also this.
3: Well, the internet is full of this stuff. Okay, so if you go on the internet, you're a kid in school. They say, okay, now we're going to read Romeo and Juliet. They give the kid no cultural background for it, no linguistic background. So the the play is utterly foreign to the poor kid, right? Um, And so what does the kid do? The kid immediately goes online, finds an online site like No Fear Shakespeare, and the text is translated for them from modern English, which is what Shakespeare wrote in, to uh, banal colloquial contemporary English. Most of the richness is gone. Lots of mistakes are introduced because sometimes um, they say that Shakespeare meant what he did not. mean. But in any case, the student gets into the habit of not reading the original at all. Um, It's not there. I I can't do it. You'll have students say, I can't do it. It's written in Old English. So no, it's not written in Old English. It's written in Modern English. You have no idea what Old English is you wouldn't understand two sentences of old English. It's written in modern English. And you should be able to read modern English because you speak it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, no, but their teachers would hardly be able to uh, run their classes on Shakespeare without the same kind of cheat uh, going on. Um, Yeah, I mean, you'll see, I I don't have very many good words to say about our schools.
2: (laughs) Well, I think... So the question that I was building toward was to use an example. So Bonnie and I are, are real life sisters and both sides of our family have coal mining back in the family tree. So we have some Scottish coal miners and some Appalachian coal miners. And the, and so this idea of like, well, if you're just going to be a coal miner, why even try to figure out what is going on? And that, I think, has permeated a lot of education now of, oh, well, if you're going to be a coal miner or you're going to be a computer scientist or whatever um you, you don't need those highbrow things and that's that very like strange. such a tragedy such a tragedy uh, yeah.
3: it's, worse, it's worse than a tragedy it's, 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 it's inhuman now i tell people this all the time okay i pull them up short I say listen okay uh first of all let's let's suppose that you're an english speaker and uh to make it to make the problem simple let's suppose you you live in 1880 and you're going to any Protestant church in the United States of America, okay? Let's say you're a coal miner, right? In 1880, and you're going to a Protestant church. You will encounter poetry of a pretty high quality every single week, right? You will be encountering it in the texts of the hymns that are written and that you will be singing. And uh, poetry will be in your soul that way. The, our contemporary hymns are terrible as poetry. Everybody, everybody had at least that. But most people had a great deal more. All the folk songs um, they had, they had by memory. Uh, and, and let's not, let's not underestimate um, what ordinary people could read or did read. Uh, They didn't have a lot of books because books were, you know, kind of expensive. Um, But um, in such books as they might have encountered, there wasn't garbage. Uh, There there was serious stuff. And there were poets in the United States who were, in the best sense of the word, popular. That is, if you read, you had encountered his poems. And most people loved them. That was the case based with John Greenleaf Whittier, with Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's had enormous readerships, these people. I'd like to tell the anecdote about Longfellow's 75th birthday. Um, He lived in in Cambridge, in Massachusetts. And on his birthday in February, so, you know, lousy weather, uh, a bunch of boys showed up, not, not older boys, 10, 11, 12 years old, 13 years old. They showed up at his house to wish him a happy birthday. They had never met him. They had never met him personally, but they just showed up there to say happy birthday because they liked his poems. Now, this is amazing. Well, Longfellow always loved kids, so he invited them in and they spent the afternoon. They spent the afternoon having tea and scones and talking about poems. And uh, this, is, this was written up in one of my popular magazines around 1890. Um, it was the last birthday on earth that Longfellow ever knew. He died a couple of weeks later. Now, the story is charming, but the story, the story suggests to us that uh, this art, which we now consider to be over everybody's heads, was important to people and was accessible even to kids, was important to boys, important enough to a bunch of boys that they said, let's go knock on Mr. Longfellow's door and just say happy birthday. Because he's seventy-five, and yeah, that's that's amazing. That, that's that story seems to come out of a different universe.
1: Yeah, it really does. Yeah, I was at, wondering also similar um, how you would how you respond to I don't know cynics skeptics who might point to the idea of the importance of public schools for that whole diversity aspect or being um, salt and light to the public school population. Those kinds of reasonings behind. Public school versus homeschool or private school. Do you, how how do you typically?
3: Yeah, yeah. I'd say that the, I'd say these things. Uh, I'd say three things. First of all, oh. uh, again, your kid's imagination is going to be formed by what's going on at that school. So quit, quit fooling yourself. Here uh, says uh, Hamlet to his mother, "Lay not that flattering unction to thy soul." That's just a way for you to feel good about what you've decided to do for other reasons. Uh, The kid's imagination is going to be formed by that. You wouldn't say, hey, you know what? I've got a 10-year-old here, and he's going to have to go out into a world that's full of porn. I should introduce him to porn now so so that he can be edified. And it would be insane if you did that. In fact, you would be criminal if you did that. All right? Uh, So that's one response. Second response. Uh, let's remember, it's not just what those kids are going to be filled with when they're at that school, it's what they're not filled with that we're talking about, okay? Because while they are, uh, introduced to the garbage, they're not being taught English. Come on, let's, let's be, let's get real here. They're not taught the English language. They're not taught English grammar. One of my college freshmen could tell me what a participle was. Uh, I talk. I've taught college freshmen since 1985. I can't be fooled about these things. Um, so there, there, there's huge, huge areas of human culture and Christian culture that they'll never get to know because they're wasting their time there. Um, I'm gonna. those so two responses, and there are two more now. Not just one more, but two. First, um, any notion that your kid is going to be made more social by being sent to school. Can be disproved in five minutes, all you have to do is spend five minutes among a group of kids who go to school and compare them with five minutes that you spend among a bunch of homeschools. Uh, I see it at Magdalen College, most of our students have been homeschooled and that means they can talk to everybody, they're comfortable in their own skins, um, they're really good around little kids, they're good around old people, they're good around everybody. Um, they They have the innocence of somebody who is fresh-faced and young, um, and yet they're they're mature. They're they're a good 10 years more mature than my students at Providence College were. But they're not jaded. They're not cynical. They've not been burnt, right? So I mean, gosh, if if you're sending them to be socialized, you gotta be. It, it, that's even more insane than sending them to school hoping that they'll be taught English literature. Um, socialized, come on. If I see if, at, at Providence College where I used to teach. If at the uh, first day of teaching freshmen, if somebody came up to me and with a big smile on his face, shook my hand and said, hello, professor, my name's Johnny. Um, My first question would be, were you homeschooled? And the kid would often say, yeah, how'd you know? Um, The second question would be, did you go to an all boys Catholic high school? And then they'd really be shocked. Say, how'd you know? And I see, you know, it shows. Because the kids who have gone to the other kinds of schools duck, they look down, they're surly, Um, they don't mean to be, they're often very good people, very nice people, but they've been harmed, all right? So let's get rid of that nonsense that they they need to go there for social reasons. And as for the missionary reasons, excuse me, um, we don't send children into brothels and other dens of iniquity. You don't say to your kid, hey, 10-year-old kid, walk down to that street corner there where there's a crack house, and you uh, talk to them about the gospel according to St. Matthew. Nobody does that. Come on, let's let's, let's be honest here. These kids, these kids are just kids. They have to be made into warriors. They're not warriors yet. And as I said, they're going to be overwhelmed, outnumbered and overwhelmed um, by what they are taught there and then deprived of what they should be taught. So that's all nonsense. That's all nonsense. And again, all I'd have to do would ask to, to prove it. All I have to do is say, listen, you come, you come to Magdalene College and you spend five minutes with our students, just five minutes. Then come talk to me. Then come talk to me about about socialization and so-called diversity. <laughs> yeah, I can attest
0: to that yeah. as well. You know, and I, I you know, one one of the things that we've seen since the since the pandemic and everyone went online or, or started homeschooling is exactly what you're saying I think I think uh, public schools and other form, brick and mortar schools and things were somewhat exposed I mean they they had to see, now that that their kids aren't learning anything. So parents were, in fact, I saw in Tennessee, there was an elementary school that made parents sign a waiver saying that they wouldn't eavesdrop on their child's classes. If you I mean, just, but one of, in in a more basic way, I think that a lot of what was exposed was that they haven't been learning anything. And um, you always sound very hopeful when you're when you're talking about students, you know, and, and, and uh, when you're talking about young students, college students, all ages of students. And I've always been of the mind that genius is as common as dirt. So like genius is all around us, but it's very often I, I guess it's it's uh, not able to develop Um but, but students, um, you know have they're capable of much, much more. Even when I look back at my own life and I was homeschooled, but i I always feel like I could have done more at an earlier age had I been challenged or given the opportunity in certain areas. Um, I don't know do you where where does that come from? Where does your your sort of uh, hopefulness and and uh, all of that
3: for for students? Where does that come from? Well, I'm glad you said hopefulness and not optimism. I like to think of myself as a pessimist filled with hope. Um, hope is the theological virtue, and optimism is a con man. The hope comes it comes from the truth, right? we could I can put it this way, right? so so we we Christians in the West are the inheritors even of the great pagan uh, classics of the past, right? And we've got that. We have had it for. The full 2000 years of Christianity. Um, what does the other side have? The other side has garbage. I mean, it doesn't even, it doesn't even make great movies anymore. It makes garbage. Um, I've got on my side, I've got Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn. I've got Michelangelo and Caravaggio and Raphael. I've got Dante, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Shakespeare, Cervantes, Augustine. I've got Thomas Aquinas, right? What do they got? Um, they got garbage. And eventually, or they've got nothing, and eventually something beats nothing. In a great fight, something will beat nothing all the time. Um, it's just that nobody knows, or so few people know, that there is something. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a fellow who is the darling of the academic left these days. Um, i not sure how he pronounces his first name. His last name is Coates, and he's an African-American man, relatively young. Uh, endowed by nature with a, a powerful intellect, um, but he uh, he was brought up short a couple of years ago when it became clear in a conversation that he did not know who Saint Augustine was. In fact, he had never heard of Saint Augustine. Right. Um, now this is a guy who won one of the MacArthur Genius Fellowships, right? The, the MacArthur Foundation. Well, the left gets hold of all these foundation monies, and they they give the grants to uh, whom they please. Uh, but Mr. Coates had never even heard of Saint Augustine, and I mean, this is it, it's just one example of a typical thing, right? There's, there's who who is he reading for philosophy and theology? The man is an atheist. Uh, who is he reading? He's not reading anybody. He's not reading anybody of any great power. Um, then what? I mean, uh, so I'm optimistic in that. Uh, I know, I know that we've got all the big guns and these other people squirting water pistols, um, but the battle just has to be engaged, and of course we uh, engage it at uh, at Magdalen. And homeschoolers can easily begin to engage it just by reading good books. So I,
0: I guess one of the the um, th- themes that I'm hearing in this conversation too is is good books. The, the, I guess the canon. Is the important thing to establish and what it's felt like is that it's been just flooded and inundated. So nobody knows, you know, one who reads must choose. They don't know what to choose exactly. Um, My guess is that what uh, you were saying earlier, we're we're too close to what's being written now and even to the more recent decades. Um, Do you have any more resources that you would give as far as uh, where people can look? to make those decisions. I, I know the the one that you gave is that where to start John Senior's list of a thousand. Is there anything else yeah. like you can
3: think of? You know, I don't know. There was uh, a long time ago, um, uh, E.D. Hirsch had come up with some practical lists in his books, what your first grader needs to know, what your second grader needs to know. Um, they can be very useful. And one thing I should say, uh, to, just to make clear to everybody, that when I'm talking about good books here, I don't necessarily mean the greatest of the classics either. Uh, they are included, but that's not all I mean. And I give you this for an example, okay? So there are a lot of popular novelists writing 100 years ago who themselves had classical education, who set themselves the task to write, you know, pretty good books. But they didn't say, okay, I'm going to be the next uh, Dostoevsky are going to be the next Cervantes, but they wrote, wrote pretty good books. And um, those books are, um, a lot of them are, if they're not gold, they're silver. They're really good. Um, so one of my old students recommended to me the swashbuckling novels of Raphael Sabatini. Um, Hollywood used to be fond of those novels, and they made Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland swashbuckling movies out of them, like The Seawolf and Captain Blood. Um, I, I went from there on a similar recommendation to read the Horatio Hornblower series of uh, 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 naval novels, of the British Navy from the late 18th century uh, by C.M. Forrester. And they're terrific, right? Um, the novels written by um, the guy who was governor general of Canada, uh, John Buchan, B-U-C-H-A-N, uh, adventure novels that, like The 39 Steps. Uh, you know, these are the books that you read because they're good books. Uh, they're not great world-shaking books, but my gosh, if a kid was brought up on books like those, there's a ton of things he'd learn about the world. And um, and again, they are written by people who had that classical education. They're they're good, of course. You know, they'd, they they peter out after around 1950. Uh, but um, I find them very rewarding. Well, Maybe a little less daunting than, than, you know, some of the others. Speaking of good books, can you tell us a
0: little bit about what you've been publishing, what you're working on, what you've been up to? I know you've been busy, so
3: I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, I, I, I keep busy. Um, the, the book that's in the hopper, that is, I finished it and it's awaiting publication uh, next year, is... Uh, a commentary, verse by verse, on the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. To um, write 60,000 words on that Gospel, just the first 18 verses, um, that used to be heard by all Catholics at the end of every high mass. It was so-called the last Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Another book that's just recently out is, is a book of essays on, on the state of what you you know for want of a better word you call our culture but isn't really a culture called sexy unreal city published by Ignatius also and um, but part of my uh, my own personal contribution to this attempt to uh, recover culture um, is a book called The hundredfold songs for the Lord that came out last year it, it's I'm trying to reclaim the territory of poetry it's a hundred poems that are one poem about the life of Christ. And um, uh, it includes a 40 page introduction, which is meant to introduce readers to what a poem is, how poems work, um, you know, because they haven't been taught at school. It's been a long time that that's been neglected. And people have said to me that the introduction is worth the price of the book, or that they learn more about poetry from that introduction than they learned about it in 12 years of school or 16 years or 20 years of school. Um, That's what they've told me. And uh, I you don't need to be afraid of it. I write in traditional forms. well, I, I don't want to praise myself. but uh, I, what i've what I've heard from people is that it's eminently readable um and enriching. Uh, I say, you know what? That territory's been abandoned. It's time for us to reclaim it. yeah. and
0: i should I should make the listeners aware, too, that um there are, podcast done at Magdalen College with um, Dr. Esselin reading excerpts and discussing from that book. Um, So if you're interested, you should definitely find those. And you can hear from the author himself how he envisioned these to sound as he's reading them out. It's really fantastic.
1: Well, Dr. Esselin, I've very much been enjoying your Angels, Barbarians, and Nincompoops. I've been working through that. (laughs) <laughs> and it actually brings to mind back in the day when I was a piano major, accompanying a zillion voice lessons. I was telling Hope I would—I was coached to translate, or I, I often did it. I mean, just very literal translations of the text that I was accompanying. So I know what was going on. I mean, the the voice majors were supposed to do that right. on their own, and so that has kind of stuck with me still to to know what's going on, even if I'm just playing it, so to speak. It's it's like I need to know what's going on. So I was really fascinated. Really are
3: fascinating, that. aren't they? Words are fun.
1: They really are. I've really been enjoying that.
3: Yeah. uh, You know what? Almost everybody is interested in words. You know, I I I hardly ever meet somebody who says, oh, you know, uh, uh, that's not very interesting. Talking about where that word comes from.
1: I think it's fascinating.
3: Um, Everybody is interested in it. It's yeah. I mean, it's something that's so close to us all. And, um, you know, everybody and anytime anybody makes a joke, they're fooling around with words. Um, So, uh, yeah. I wrote I wrote that book uh, um, uh, as a kind of jeu d'esprit, you know? Uh, here, let's talk about some interesting words here. Words that you would never guess were related to other words. Right, boy? Again. I'm oh, talking to my gosh. dog here now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oops, dog wants in on the conversation, too. He does.
2: Well, I think uh, the last question I had for you is, um, Bishop Robert Barron had a video where he talks about Brideshead Revisited, and he talks about how Charles Ryder um comes to Brideshead throughout the novel and he's surrounded by this beauty but he doesn't really recognize what's happening as he encounters it until eventually spoiler alert he goes back to Brideshead at the end of the end of the novel and bishop Barron uses that book to discuss kind of the approachability of beauty um with the beautiful the good and the true he says you know in a very relativistic society, if you start with the true, people can argue with you. And if you start with the good, you, people can say that you're judging them. But if you approach them with beauty, that is the first introduction that a lot of people have. And so he brings that in with Dostoevsky's Beauty Will Save the World and with Brideshead and our Colby 12th graders read Brideshead in the third quarter, I believe. Uh, so right before they graduate. And I just wondered if you had any, any thoughts on that beauty, truth, and goodness, especially Combining with what you said about imagination,
3: yeah, I, I I agree. It may be the way, right, the way that's left. Uh, and the pro- the problem with it is that um, there there are going to be people who are so ruined by uh, what they get exposed to on screen or in school that um, their taste, their very taste for beauty, will be corrupted. Um, with such people, so you've got you've got real deep spiritual problems going on there. Um, but for people who that has not happened to yet, they they can be taken by storm. Um, and yeah, Charles Ryder, that's an interesting it is interesting observation there because what he's looking at, he knows darned well that his own people could not build Brideshead, right? And that's kind of made evident in his in his work because he goes on to kind of appeal to the wistful sentimentality of other English people. He goes on to paint um, pictures of old manor houses from which the very soul has departed. And yet it speaks to something there, right? Uh, and it still does. I mean, how many people are just enthralled by Jane Austen novels and their portrayal when they're done well, when they're portrayed on film, um, even the creepy uh, Downton Abbey series, that's some of this going for. Um, it's as if we kind of know on some level, we don't build buildings that are that beautiful. We don't have customs that are that noble. So we look to the past with kind of sentimentality, but we don't know what animated the buildings. Uh, Charles Ryder gets to know what animated the builders.
2: beautiful, thank you it's really been
1: a pleasure and a privilege speaking with you and and listening to you and I appreciate it. Thank you
3: very much. Thank you. you. Do spread the word about Magdalene College. You could use the students and it's a great, great place.
1: Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. Ad mayorem Dei Gloriam.